Good morning slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winsor Robertson, and I am joined as ever by our co-host, Lena Benabdella, and a new co-host I have picked up along the way, Yiting Wang, who was a previous guest on this pod discussing cook stoves in the China-Africa relationship. Yiting, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, and thank you, Winslow and Lena, for offering the opportunity. Uh, it's been an absolute honor as a long-term fan of the pod. Uh, so I am based in Beijing currently. I'm working uh, for a nonprofit as actually focuses on uh, Chinese overseas investment and trade and their impact on the environment and how we could actually promote cooperation in sustainable development. So I'm very excited to be a co-host with you guys. Excellent. We hope to be having you on for every episode in the future, God willing. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers to professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest of diversified development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, or FOCAC, just ended last Friday and Saturday, December 4th through 5th, in Johannesburg, South Africa. There's still a number of issues that we wanted to cover, so we will continue looking at the summit for the foreseeable future. For historical context, FOCAC was initiated in 2000 in Beijing in order to sketch out a three-year cooperation plan between China and the countries of Africa. Since then, the triennial meetings have alternated between China and an African country. However, this episode will not be devoted to FOCAC proper. We are extremely fortunate to have on the pod again Professor Deborah Brodingham, who is the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, Bernard L. Schwartz Professor in International Political Economy, as well as Professor of International Development and Comparative Politics, and Director of the International Development Program and the China-Africa Research Initiative, Sice Carey. She recently published a wonderful book on China-Africa agriculture titled, Will Africa Feed China?, and published by Oxford University Press, which is available now for purchase. I heartily recommend buying several copies of this book for your friends and relatives this holiday season. It is so good that even someone casually interested in China or Africa will find it enjoyable. In addition, Professor Brodinger was just in South Africa to participate in an event, China-Africa, a Maturing Relationship, Growth, Change, and Resilience, held by the South African Institute of International Affairs and DFID ESRC Growth Research Program, as well as a book event as well, if I recall correctly. Professor Brodingham, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Winslow. It's great to be here. Did you attend FOCAC? And if so, how many autographed copies of your book did Presidents Xi and Zuma ask of you? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I was in South Africa at the invitation of the DGREP program, which is sponsored by the British aid agency, DFID. So we were at a conference all day the day before FOCAC began. Um, I wasn't invited to the FOCAC, and I was not able to get into it. I did try, um, but you need to get, at the very least, you have to have credentials as a journalist. And I think they were pretty flexible on that. Um, I'm not a journalist, and so I didn't really have a way to get in. That is a major pity, and, and I'm, I can't believe one of your old buddies from any of the ministries couldn't hook you up. That's neither here nor there. We're going to go really quickly into the main arguments of your text because we want to kind of shift away from that. Could you just tell us what your book is about, the myths that you're trying to debunk, and the ultimate findings and conclusions? 
Winslow, I think the question of what China wants is a huge question for the global community. And trying to understand that uh, in an accurate way is really important for us to craft policy in a sensible and strategic manner. And so what I try to do in my work more generally is to try to take an evidence-based approach to understanding what China wants. And as you know, I've made a kind of specialty of puncturing myths that we think we believe about China's engagement in Africa and trying to provide evidence that sheds light on those. So with regard to the agriculture question, it seemed to me uh, that uh, conventional wisdom was building up on this matter. And that conventional wisdom had four parts. The first was that the Chinese had acquired a large amount of land in Africa. The second was that this was being led by the Chinese government through its state-owned companies and sovereign wealth funds. And third, that the purpose of this was to grow food to send back to China. And the fourth is that they wanted to send large amounts of Chinese peasants to grow this food. So I saw references to this conventional wisdom being uh, circulated around in very prominent places like The Economist, uh, the World Bank, the Africa Development Bank, um, academics and think tanks, and not just journalists. And so the purpose of the book was to look into all of those questions and see where the evidence lay. Excellent. And what were your ultimate findings? I imagine you debunked all those myths. And spoiler, I did read your book, so I, I know you did. everyone in suspense, um, if, I'll just briefly recap the book's argument. And what we did, if I can just take a step back, is uh, I spent over three years with a team of people that I led to look into all of these questions. And uh, one thing we did was to put together a database of the 60 largest cases that we had seen reference to any kind of Chinese agricultural investment in Africa since 1987. And so we have those 60 cases as an appendix in the book, but we looked into every one of those and tried, and tried to find out what had actually happened. And uh, if Chinese companies had acquired all the land that was stated in these various stories, it would have been over 6 million hectares. And we could only find evidence for between 240 and 250,000 hectares, which is less than 4% of that alleged total. So the, uh, to go back to the four myths, the first, the Chinese obviously haven't actually acquired very much land. We looked into the policy framework and the incentive structure coming from Beijing for Chinese companies. And we found rather than a big effort to acquire land that was backed by all of these state instruments, that Chinese companies that wanted to invest in Africa were crying out for help and crying out for support and complaining that the government wasn't doing anything. So there were companies that wanted to invest, um, and they didn't find an array of support from the Chinese government. So the third question, what did they want to do with that investment? They were doing typical kinds of things that multinationals and uh, companies from other parts of the world were doing, which is they were looking for profit. So the largest investment is actually in a rubber plantation, which was acquired from uh, the Cameroon government originally, and then acquired uh, secondarily from a Singapore company. So Chinese companies invested in rubber in Cameroon. We also found them investing in sisal. We found them investing in uh, a lot of subcontracting operations with African farmers. And we didn't see um, them investing in growing food to send back to China. So there were, just, there were no examples of this. 
in any of these 60 cases. So, and the final thing is that there, there we found no villages of Chinese peasants anywhere in Africa. So that's also an illusion that the Chinese want to export their peasant population to rural Africa. One of the things that I really enjoyed that you did is you didn't just talk about the myths, but you sort of built up how these myths got started. And one of your chapters, I think maybe chapter three, you actually gave a timeline of this statement, this statement, this policy document, and it, it was really great to see everything constructed. So it, it, it was more than lazy American journalists screwing everything up. Not that all American journalists are lazy, but just wanted to, to compliment you on that. Why did you go that extra step? to be thorough so I wanted to and I also felt as though this is a topic that I had actually started researching in 1983 so <laughs> I it was the topic of my PhD dissertation looking at Chinese agricultural engagement in Africa so I actually knew a huge amount about this before I even started writing the book uh, and then what I did with the book was to look into these cases and to build up the incentive structure as it focused particularly on agriculture. And I I think I'm, by nature, uh, I don't accept the, the first version of something if I think there's a deeper version or if there's more evidence to be gathered on it. So I, I try not to be superficial. And uh, it, it bothers me a lot when I see other people um, being superficial or just recirculating things that I know there's not any evidence to back it up. So I think in another life, I might have been a journalist. And if I had been a journalist, I would have been an investigative journalist. And I would have tried to write only feature stories long term, <laughs> something where you could really invest a lot of time. And I think, unfortunately, um, most journalists this day don't have that luxury. They may have wanted to be that kind of journalist as well. But they found out uh, that they were expected to write an article in three hours and then have it ready to publish uh, for their editor uh, the next day. And they weren't able to do that kind of investigation. So I, to give them a, a break, they just don't have the funding, they don't have the support um, from their newspapers that I think uh, journalists need to do in order to do research on China and Africa. It's not an easy topic to investigate. Too true. Uh, Lino, what about yourself? What were you about to ask? Um, well, actually, very connected to this question of the media. I mean, it seemed to me from reading um, uh, the book that uh, a lot of these myths get circulated through media. I mean, may or may not have started with media, but they get circulated through it. Or even even sometimes, you know, when we search or in policy, like you said, it could be, you know, World Bank for, 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 for all that matters that circulates these, these misperceptions. My question is, uh, what, what is there something to be done there? Um, obviously, it, it, it takes a lot of effort and, and, and financial support to conduct thorough research, as, as you were explaining, and a lot of the research is not conducted in that time frame or with that you know, uh, specific amount of resources. What do you think can be done or should be done, realistically speaking, about these kind of circulations of, of misperceptions, both well, in the I research and the policy, yeah. Uh, I, let me give you two points on that, Lena. Uh, the first is that I think the problem is is broader. It's really uh, a reflection of the access to information on the internet. 
And so in the past, there was more of a, a gatekeeping function that happened in two ways. And one is uh, editors and fact checkers at major publications. So you had uh, the New Yorker is famous for its fact checking, but you had this much larger staff, I think, in the past. Um, and then newspapers that were not very good or didn't have um, very good fact checking or more sensationalists, they just didn't get out there because they weren't on the internet. So someone might buy them or they might be circulated, but it was on a very small scale. Now any kind of newspaper without any uh, qualifications or journalists can have their things posted on the internet. And then there's not a kind of a um, quality control out there for information. So that's one problem. Mm -hmm. And the second is that uh, research, if you're going to do research, it needs to be funded. And so uh, there's not a lot of money out there to do mm -hmm. this kind of research. And, and we've been very fortunate here at the China Africa Research Initiative because we have two big grants, one from Carnegie Corporation of New York and the other from DFID, the British Aid Agency. And DFID in particular has uh, had a big call, I think it's something like five million pounds, to do research just on China and Africa. And I was fortunate to lead a team that uh, got one of these grants. And so our research is funded, at least going forward from this year. And then Carnegie came in last year. Uh, and before that, we also had some much smaller funding from Smith Richardson Foundation. But uh, it's hard to do this kind of research. You need teams of people to do it. And uh, I've been fortunate that my research has gotten external funding. But for other people, it's it's not that easy. And you know that yourself, Lena, and Winslow. Oh, it's absolutely. Tough. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. tough. It's a tough funding environment out there. One final point on that, which is that research, um, also in the past, academic research, uh, most of it was published through peer-reviewed sources or mm -hmm. or through magazines that had better fact-checking. But today, people can just post things on, on a blog or a lot of think tanks have their own blogs. And not a lot of fact-checking goes on. Uh, for blog postings, I have to tell you. So, so this is um, this is something where I think organizations like yours can contribute um, to to better research on there by trying to profile the research because you're well informed, and you see this with others like China Africa Project and China Africa Reporting Project. But a lot of um, more general institutes or think tanks have blogs and they post things that don't get that kind of fact checking and I'm continually disappointed by the kinds of things and the kind of, of people even high profile people <laughs> who, um, who talk about China and Africa uh, people that should be better informed and they just recirculate these myths and uh, mis misconceptions. That's a really good point and before we go on to eating uh Professor Brodingham in her book mentioned one think tank's report in particular that didn't hold up to scrutiny, unfortunately. And, and I remember reading that thinking, why didn't I just write make-believe China-Africa stories and get my name out there? I think I'm in the wrong business. But in any case, <laughs> Yiting, what about you? Um, yes, Professor Brodingham, I think uh, through the book, it seems that you have managed to talk to quite a few Chinese um, actors that are key to your story. Has this been easy and then the people that you talked to have been the approachable and how was your experience sort of, um, you know, engaging with uh, these people to get a different story? Uh, Yiting, it isn't easy. And in the beginning of the book, I quote um, an official at the Ministry of Agriculture who said to me, he said, you know, this is not an easy subject to do research on. And he said, even for us, it's hard. <laughs> and so, um, 
So it wasn't easy. But here's where I was really blessed uh, by my network. And as I said, because I've been working on this topic since 1983, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who are active in this area. And that includes Chinese researchers, includes people at the Ministry of Agriculture. And I had a wonderful group of research assistants. And so every time I needed to interview somebody, I put into uh, operation this entire network. And so my research assistants would try to find um, email addresses, telephone numbers. We would try, they would try really hard. My colleagues would work to try to help me to set up interviews. So I had this whole support network to try to reach people mm -hmm. and it worked. So I can't really think of any interview that we weren't ultimately able to get, but it wasn't easy. Just tracking people down, for example, who had retired or projects that were, uh, that failed. And so people had moved on uh, and getting their stories. It, it wasn't easy and it took years. Um, but ultimately, there really was nothing that we, there weren't any of these interviews, as I said, that I don't think we were able to get. But some of them, um, I had to go to extreme. Um, <laughs> for example, one person in Mozambique, Mozambican, I was trying to meet. And I eventually tracked him down on LinkedIn. So I found him myself. And it was things like this, meeting, making connections through LinkedIn for people that we just could not contact. And he lives in a remote, he lives in, in Beira, which is in northern Mozambique. So I was fortunate. Uh, that was good luck, I think, that he was also on LinkedIn and that he had an unusual name. <laughs> Fascinating. And Yiting, do you have any FOCAC-related questions? I do. Um, so I'm curious, how do you foresee the trend of China... Africa engagement in the in the agriculture sector based on your book and uh, the statements that are just coming out of FOCAC so far? Well, this is nothing new for FOCAC. I think agriculture has been on the agenda probably since the beginning um, because it's something that African countries have been asking for. They look at China's ability to feed its people um, and the success that the Chinese have had in agriculture, and they're very interested in learning from this. So, for example, um, I think the last year of data shows that uh, Africa as a whole, the continent, is importing something like 10 million tons of rice. And so that's a huge um, area in which production could be increased and they could substitute for those imports. And that's been a challenge. The, the, my first book was about Chinese efforts to teach Chinese rice production techniques in West Africa. And it didn't go very terribly well. Um, but they're still trying. And I think there is, there is a possibility of production. Um, it's just going to take time. So African governments have been asking for Chinese help in this area for a long time. In Mozambique, for, particular, uh, um, for example, uh, the Mozambican government pressed the Chinese to come and invest in, in Mozambique and come and uh, help them produce rice there. And they've been asking for this since the late 1990s. Yeah, and it seems... So to add okay. one more thing to that, so in the FOCAC, they just continued this kind of cooperation. Um, in 2006, the FOCAC pledged to do, I think it was 10 agrotechnology demonstration centers, and, to, and then later they pledged to send Chinese agricultural experts. The Chinese are also working with the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, in their South-South Cooperation Program. So they've been sending um, Chinese agricultural teams to work with um, African governments in ministries of agriculture. And this has been going on for quite a long time, I think up to 15 years.
Excellent. Excellent. And we, we have a little bit of time left. So how do people find you on the internet? Do you have a website or Twitter account that you'd like to share with us? Um, I'm several places on the internet. Let me get a, give a shout out to the China Africa Research Initiative at SAIS at the school at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. So that, that's S-A-I-S hyphen C-A-R-I dot org. I'm also at ChinaAfricaRealStory.com, which is my blog on China and Africa, and uh, on my personal website, DeborahBrowdegam.com, and then my Twitter handle is D underscore Brautigam. And how should I be pronouncing your name? Brautigam? Or I always usually say Brautigam. Well, it's Brautigam. Brautigam it is. That's how we say it, but if you want to be very German about it, you can say Brautigam. I'm going to stick with the way you say it. (laughs) And do you have any recommendations for our listeners before you sign off? I know you have a meeting or class in four minutes. I really like your recommendation, Winslow, that people should buy Will China Feed Africa as Christmas presents. Multiple copies. And just, just a heads up, the cover is in red and with a little bit of green, so it's quite festive. Right, I think it hanging several hanging from your tree would be a nice decoration. <laughs> and to prepare for this pod, I bought the hard copy and I bought the Kindle edition because I wasn't totally sure if the hard copy would arrive in time and if I wanted to write on it or not. So I've already done my duty. <laughs> thank you, Winslow. All right, and with that, we will we will let you off. But thank you so very much for making the time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Wonderful to talk to you, Winslow, Lena, and Eating. Thank you, Professor. Have a good day. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. And now we can continue on with the recommendations. So, Lena, Yiting, what recommendations do you have for our listeners? Okay, so I can start. I uh, would like to... I have read actually a New York Times piece uh, that was uh, uh, just that came out this weekend, um, and it's titled "In Nigeria: Chinese Investment Comes with a Downside." Um, it's a really good piece. Uh, uh, Winslow, I found it. It's kind of it provides a balanced view um, of the different, um, you know, multifaceted view of the investments of China in Nigeria. Um, and uh, it's it very, very uh, fun to read. Um, so that's my recommendation. Excellent. Uh, and do what's the name of the piece again? So it's it's titled in Nigeria. Chinese investment comes with a downside. Uh, it's written by uh, Keith uh, Bratcher and Adam Nossiter. Um I can um, forward you the link. That was actually going to be my recommendation. So that's fine. Sorry. That's fine. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Yiting, what about yourself? Um, I'm going to be a little bit more boring. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I will recommend people reading the uh, declaration that just came out of the FOCAC Summit. And I would also recommend people to read the action plan that will soon follow uh, the declaration that will have more specific uh, term-by-term agreements uh, that was reached between China and the many African countries uh, to really sort of see the the nitty-gritty of um, the, um, I think, the you know, di- collaboration in many different 
uh, arenas. And I think uh, that itself will really help guide us um, in the future of China-African engagement and, you know, to not to be imagining things. And, and also, I think, to read it and then to um, holding, to hold the uh, Chinese and African governments accountable for what they have promised to do. Um, so I would um, highly recommend that. And then we will definitely be talking about it as they come out. Really excellent point. Remember, read what the people who are doing the work actually say. So if there's a policy document and you follow China Africa, you should probably read it. Right, that's a really, really good advice. And we're all watching for the action plan with bated breath. Since Lena cruelly stole my recommendation, I'm going to flip it and go on to another recommendation that I was pocketing for a later date. The 2015 report on the sustainable development of Chinese enterprises overseas by the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation or the Ministry of Commerce by the Research Center of the State-Owned Asset Supervision and Administrative Commission of the State Council and the United Nations Development Program, China or of China, I actually don't know if it's either. But it's, I don't know, what, 150, 160 pages on what Chinese enterprises are doing overseas and their relation to sustainable development. It's really good, really well researched, and if you care at all about sustainability or environmental protection or any combination therein, you should definitely take a look at it. And I believe uh, one of our friends, Hannah Ryder, was involved in it as well. Um, and, and she's the head of UNDP China? I forget which, but the she's head of uh, partnerships and policy, I think. The head of partnerships and policy, yes. Well, in any case, check it out. And finally, how do people find you on the internet, Lina and Yiting? I can be found on Twitter. Uh, my handler is um, L Ben Abdella, um, and uh, that would be the easiest way to find me. And you put out a very good tweet um, trying to break down the sixty billion announced by China and FOCAC, and I. And yeah, Lena, your, your Twitter account was on fire, as the kids would say, over the weekend. It was busy traffic, let me tell you that. Oh, Yiting, what about yourself? Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, uh, at Dao of the Pool, D-A-O-O-F-T-H-E-P-O-O-P. Oh, P-O-O-P? P-O-H, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> Good catch. It, it's it's a different po. It's a different <laughs> poo or poop or it, it's 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 a brilliant Twitter handle. Um, and it's my favorite. And book. you also, and you were actually in South Africa um, over the over the weekend. Was that correct? Yes, I was. I was one of the China Africa nerds who made it to South Africa. So you owe it to yourself to, to follow her right now and just check out everything she said over the past seven days. And, and I believe you, you live tweeted one or two events. Um, yes, um, but also um, hearing information from my colleagues who are actually in the room with negotiators. So. Ah, so cool. Okay, well, 
Um, and, and finally, I myself can be found on cowrieswrice.blogspot.com and www.cowrieswrice.com, the latter site housing my fledgling China-African consultancy. In addition, my Twitter handle is at wins underscore R, and I tweet about China-African news, events, opinions, and arcana. And that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Professor Brautigan, Brautigan, Brautigan for joining us this afternoon and, well, Wait, no, this morning and evening. What time is it over where you are eating? Uh, 5.30, 10.00. Well, I'm actually in Cambodia right now, so it's 10.07 p.m. So we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning and evening, then. Um, and Professor Brodingham for, for joining us from Washington, D.C. We'd also like to thank African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. I'm looking into sharing it on Buzzsprout as well because I think Buzzsprout is not blocked in China. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio from Macomb, Illinois to share a podcast. We would also like to thank Biting Mac of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.